One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Rachel, and on today's New Statesman podcast, I'm talking to Conservative commentator John Oxley all about the existential threats facing the Tory party. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today. You wrote an essay over the summer in the midst of the Tory leadership contest when it was Liz Truss versus Rishi Sunak, all about how the Conservative Party was dying or at least facing some very existential threats. And the Conservative Party is sort of your expert subject. It's something that I know you have a personal, professional and almost moral sort of interest in. And this essay kind of went viral or seemed to capture something that a lot of conservatives, it turned out, were themselves thinking, but were scared perhaps to articulate. What was the kind of driving force behind what you were trying to argue over the summer? I think the biggest thing was, it was the build up of years and years of frustration with the party, really, and sort of this sense that the Conservative Party had been in power for 12 years now in one form or another, whether that was in coalition or through the various prime ministers. And that I think for people like me, who that was our first taste of conservative government, it felt very disappointing when you looked back on what had been achieved, that there was also a sense that there's these building crises that are facing the country. An obvious one is the housing crisis, things like social care, and generally the stagnant economic growth and what that has meant for taxation and spending. And these ideas have been kicking around my head for a while. And in most of the conversations I had with friends who were involved in the party one way or another, the same things kept going up. And there were so many people, particularly, I think, in my position from a sort of conservative background, probably not as involved as I was, but who were worked in London, were reasonably successful professionals and still felt all this frustration around things like housing prices, childcare, and that even for them, the Conservative Party weren't delivering, that there was this sort of just sense that the party was existing to win elections and not to do anything beyond that. And I, yeah, channeled probably a couple of years of frustration into a few hours of writing and put it out there to see, you know, kind of thinking that in my 
sort of small corner of Twitter, there's going to be a few people who are going to agree with it, and we'd have an interesting discussion. That was it. And then over the course of the next two days, it it sort of barreled on, got a lot of more readers, was picked up by the Spectator, and went from there, became there, and by us, I and should by, say, and, you, and by you. But went on, and I think for that entire week, it was the most read article on their on their website. And my phone was blowing up with people I knew vaguely from conservative circles messaging me saying. I saw it. I loved it. I think one of my friends messaged me. He's quite involved in the party. And he said, I knew you'd done something good when three different people sent it to me without knowing that I know you. It's titled The Problem with the Conservative Party with the subheading. It's probably not the one you think it is. And what I think is interesting about the reaction is just how many conservatives there are who seem absolutely furious with the state that their party is in at the moment. Now, this was obviously over the summer, so they just, the Conservatives had just got rid of their third Prime Minister, David Cameron, Theresa May got rid of Boris Johnson, they were choosing their fourth. We're now on our fifth, um, although he he was the runner-up in that contest. And all of those individuals and all of the governments that they have led and the kind of dynamics of those governments, it's very difficult to think of some kind of overarching ideology that links them in some way, overarching kind of sense of conservative values or conservative purpose. It does feel, certainly from the outside, that it has been a case of what do we have to do to cling on to power, especially with the last couple of leaders. Is that a fair way of looking at it? I think that's absolutely right. When I was writing it, I didn't want it to be one of these pieces that you see all the time, which is effectively... The Conservative Party should be the Conservative Party I think it should be because I am on the right of the party, I'm on the left of the party, and then it will be miraculously both popular and solve all of our problems. It was more about the party has become completely listless. It follows one direction, then another. And I think the sort of title that you talked about, and particularly the subtitle, was people, I think, outside of the party often characterise this idea that Tory politicians have this ruthless ideology that they want to do away with the state. And generally, when you meet people in the party, they don't. Like, I think I said it in the article, but one of the things that I think is most surprising when you talk to a lot of Tory MPs, a lot of prospective Tory MPs or people who want to be more involved in politics on the right and are bigwigs in the party or sharp-elbowed and ambitious is actually how little they are seemingly motivated by politics. There's no real ideology there. There's often not even a great sense of these are the outcomes we should be pushing for. And sometimes that can really be the Tory party strength. But I think the flip side of that is what you've seen over the past few years, where you have this basically being led by the nose by the electorate, or what you think the electorate wants, and not really thinking how are these things going to impact in 10 or 15 years, or what is the country that we want to build? I want to talk specifically about nimbyism, partly because it's something that we chat about on this podcast a fair amount, and also because I know you have some quite sort of strong views. You've been documenting Conservative MPs or Conservative councillors who in one tweet will say, we really need a pro-growth policy that helps entrepreneurs or young people or whatever. And then their next tweet will be posing with five activists saying how pleased they are that they've blocked a housing development or they've blocked a solar farm or a wind farm. It's worth saying that Labour and the Lib Dems and the Greens all do this too. 
but it's very noticeable with the Tory MPs simply because they're also trying to channel this pro-growth um, idea, or at least like they were under Liz Truss. What are the forces that lead to that? How do we get? How did we get into a situation where the party of entrepreneurship and aspiration and home ownership and business ingenuity and all of that has got to a point where they are basically blocking what feels like anything that would help achieve any of those goals? I think the biggest thing is you get, when you look at the electoral map, Tory power is generally concentrated in suburban seats and the rural urban fringe. So you have a lot of the seats that encircle the green belt. You have a lot of seats on the edge of town where you know people want to go and build housing. But what you have is this sort of incentive structure for individuals where fundamentally it's not nice to have the field, the lovely field at the end of your street turned into houses. You can see how people don't like that. But in particular, you have an incentive structure for MPs and councillors who you know, primarily are driven by getting re-elected, where the people they are going to listen to are the 300 people in their houses saying, we don't want that development, not the thousand families who, when it's built, might move in there. And there's a general sense, I think, within politics, and you talk about how this affects all of the parties, that from the moment you go into even local politics, there's this sense that housing development is something you oppose because it's unpopular. And there's no real immediate upside to it. And so the incentives for local homeowners and the incentives for politicians are really aligned around blocking that sort of housing. And it really goes back to what I was saying earlier in the Tory party, that if we had a really ideological Tory party that believed in cutting regulation, superpower growth, as they were saying a few weeks ago, and as generally you would say is the vision of the Conservative Party from the outside, they'd be saying to these local homeowners, no, the it's in the national interest, it's in the interest of growth, it's in the interest of yeah, other people. Yeah, be patriotic, allow a housing development, serve your country. Exactly. If you look at the Tory messaging in the 1950s, in the elections there, where you had Harold Macmillan, who was housing secretary and built about 300,000 homes a year for three years, which is the trajectory we need to be at the moment. And you look at all of the Tory messaging in the election before that and subsequently when he became Prime Minister and led the party into the next election. You see all these posters that are sort of more homes, better homes, vote Conservative. And that has completely gone away now. On the sort of theme of looking back through Tory party history, it is commonly said that the reason the Conservative Party is very successful is because it is a broad church. It encompasses many different strands of thought that all come together under a broad Conservative umbrella, that it can be very flexible and adaptable and change with the times. It does feel like something has gone wrong with this particular iteration of it. And some people say, no, it's going to be able to reinvent itself. It always does. And other people, you being one of them, argue that something has gone wrong that can't just be explained away by there are lots of different philosophies within the party and it will probably get its act together again. Why, why is that? I think the biggest thing that has changed is I think the party's lost the sense of really trying to address the pressing problems of the day with the best thinking that is available at the time. And you sort of look certainly through the post-war history of the Conservative Party. You, know, you had this sort of 
post-war consensus, particularism, you know, had Rab Butler, who was phenomenally intelligent at the heart of government. And that led to this consensus, which did a lot to rebuild after the war. That flowed through into people like Ian McLeod, now the second, no, still the first shortest serving chancellor, I think, but only because he died he a died, month yes. into office. This was the name that we all briefly learnt when, yeah. when, when Quasi Kwarteng lasted a matter of days. Yes, fascinating character, really intelligent, was a professional gambler before he became a politician. The other one we learnt was Canning, the yes. shortest serving... George George Canning. Who shortest serving Prime Minister until Liz Truss yes. outdid who, him. Who, again, also died. In office, yes. In office, yes. Yeah, he was a sort of 19th century prime minister, so obviously he's dead now. But the... Sorry, that wasn't meant to seem so catty. <laughs> yeah, so you had people like Ian McLeod, who's supremely bright. And then when Thatcherism came in, this was a real pivot away, but it was looking at the problems that had built up, particularly in the 1970s, this sort of industry that was largely state-run, was hugely expensive, was dragging down the rest of the country. You had you know, things like tax rates, which seem ridiculously high. You know, we've been having this debate about 45p versus 40p for the highest earners. In the 1970s, I think the highest rate of income tax for earned income was 70 or 80%. And the highest rate of income tax for sort of marginal rate for unearned income was something like 98%. So you had a completely different landscape. And you had, again, this generation of thinkers, Keith Joseph and Nigel Lawson, who looked at what was dragging down the country in their view, and they came in with this very broad, radical plan to shift it to tackle the problems. And we see, saw how that flowed through with both lower taxes, privatisation, and the deregulation of a lot of institutions like the city, and that led to a lot of economic growth. But I think what the party now lacks really is that sense of how do we pull together the best ideas that are kicking around? How do we get them through? How do we convince people on them? And I think ultimately, how do we try and solve these problems in a way that ends up looking like a country that aligns with conservative values? Do you think there's a sense that, I'm thinking specifically of the brief Liz Truss era, and we will come on to the Rishi Sunak era, but I think it's worth just remembering what it was that happened in those 44 days. Do you think there's a sense that Conservative thinkers on the right of the parties, the free market types, looked at what Thatcher had done and what the effects were and just took away the simplistic message that cut taxes, cut regulation whatever the problems are in, in, in the country, and it equals growth, boom, you get growth. Whereas what Thatcher actually did and her advisors and her team was look at what the structural issues facing the United Kingdom were and come up with a plan to deal with them. And there's this idea that it's a bit of a magic spell and if you put in this policy, you will get this result without necessarily looking at how things might have changed structurally. I'm not sure I'd characterise all of the think tanks as coming with that view. I think there's a sort of broader section of thought there. But I think that is the political distillation that led into the the trust government and particularly the mini budget that failed so spectacularly. There was this idea that, and you look at it through her campaign through the summer, it was real like, you know, to the extent of basically dressing up as Margaret Thatcher. I am going to do Thatcherism again, but harder and stronger. And I think you're right that it wasn't by that, I mean, I'm going to get a bunch of 
really smart MPs around the top table. I'm going to get a bunch of really smart advisors from outside and we're going to look at what's broken and we're going to look at the radical thinking that's going on and how we can apply that to our country. It was, I'm going to do what Mrs Thatcher did. I'm going to cut taxes. I'm going to cut regulation. But our economy is totally different from how it was 40 years ago. Yeah, I say this time and time again to people that we are as far from Mrs Thatcher becoming Prime Minister as she was from Neville Chamberlain's government in terms of time. And she didn't arrive saying, I'm going to sign a peace agreement with Germany and rearm. You have totally different challenges. And really the art of government, I think, is looking at the challenges that sit before you, looking at the toolbox you have available and thinking what works on this in a way that leads to the sort of outcomes that we as Conservatives, or if you're from the other side, that we as the Labour Party think. And ultimately, those outcomes are probably going to be different. And so the solutions are going to be different. But it's not, I don't think we have one Conservative toolbox and there's a Labour toolbox and we will do that no matter what. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. From Ukraine to Brazil, DC to China, we cover the stories that matter in a world that's constantly changing. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Join us. Just search World Review wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Which segues really nicely into this week and the fiscal statement in response to the mini budget, which we should stop calling a mini budget because it really wasn't. It was a maxi non-budget. But you've now got Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak trying desperately to figure out some kind of fiscal plan that puts the UK on more stable economic footing and crucially means that our, our debt payments don't shoot up too much. All of the briefing we've been getting in the last couple of weeks is saying, is suggesting that this is going to be a really gloomy speech, a really gloomy set of, of policy announcements. Tax rises for everyone. I think Jeremy Hunt has, has briefed that. Deep spending cuts, we don't quite know where they're going to be, but deep spending cuts crucially, and we've done a lot on this at the New Statesman on the podcast in particular. We're still recovering from austerity and from a lot of the cuts that were 
made from 2010 onwards, some of which we thought at the time were cutting waste. And it turns out we're actually cutting quite crucial parts of the state that we are now missing. What's going through the mind of the Conservative government at the moment? What are they trying to achieve? Can they achieve it? Can they get to a point where they produce some kind of policy package that is credible, but not incredibly destructive on the, as the country is on the brink of recession? I think it's a very difficult challenge because what the Truss experiment showed is the markets aren't going to bear the, we're going to have a load of unbalanced spending now and take care of that later. We'll let growth take care of that later. The people who lend us money, just the people who buy government gilts, just fundamentally do not believe that equation. It was kind of like if I walk out of here and go to a bank and say, will you lend me £100,000 and I'll go to the casino and I'll pay you back in three months when I've won a million. Like, that's great if the bank manager believes you, but they don't. I mean, if, if you were Elon Musk, they might. Well... <laughs> that is basically what Elon Musk managed to do. Yeah, like, you have a certain amount of credibility. You can say, lend me the money and I'll figure out the plan later. For the last 12 years, we've not had anything like the sort of growth we would have anticipated. And it is hard to see where that starts to come from. And that's the other problem that the Chancellor's facing. And it goes back into what you were talking to about cuts and tax rises. Generally, underpinning a lot of the ideas around how you come up with a budget is this idea that you're going to keep growing. And so if you keep your tax rates roughly level, you'll be able to spend more because if your income goes up and you keep taking the same percentage of it, that will track. And that's not been happening now for sort of 10 or 12 years. And in that space, we have rising costs of public services. The, as much as we had austerity, a lot of that was cuts to the increase rather than, um, I mean, there were some sort of real-term cuts, but a lot of the time it was cuts to the rate of increase. So we're still spending more on the NHS, but what w has happened is our GDP has gone down. And there you create a squeeze where you have costs still going up on a certain tra trajectory, but your income isn't. And at a certain point, you have to balance that out because it becomes unsustainable. And you know, one of the options for that is really having significant tax increases. One of the other options is having very significant cuts to public services. And if you're the Chancellor, well, you look to have something in the middle because both of those are going to have economic and social consequences and electoral consequences. So what you have to do is find a way to sort of spread the pain between both of those. Any predictions as to where that balance might fall or how Jeremy Hunt might try and soften it or hide some of the impacts? I think possibly the most likely thing and in some ways the most worrying thing is you cut more long-term investment spending, which is great because if you're a chancellor and you're a politician, cutting the money you're going to spend on, say, railway infrastructure in 15 years' time is great because no one notices that until in 15 years' time someone's standing on a train platform wondering where their train is. And in the same way, 10 years ago, we had these budgets that cut things like investing in nuclear power and solar power and renewable energy. We got rid of our gas storage because that was expensive. And why do we need to store lots of gas? We have a constant supply. We have these great pipelines coming from Russia. And then suddenly, you're really relying on the thing that you should have built 10 or 15 years ago. Do you think it's fair to say that, obviously, we're facing a global economic crisis and inflation is a global issue and the energy crisis is a global issue. But we've done quite a lot of work and quite a lot of data analysis on how 
the UK does seem to be uniquely exposed to some of these challenges. Is it fair to blame 12 years of Conservative government for that? I think blame is an interesting concept. I think they probably, a lot of those things weren't particularly controversial at the time. You could see the rationale behind them. But what I think the Conservatives really have failed to do is come up with game-changing ideas that could have transformed in particular around growth. I think you have to look at the trajectory of the last 10, 12 years and say that has been disappointing. I think there's been some things that were done quite well. For example, we never had the very high youth unemployment that you see in the a lot of countries around Europe. And arguably, a decision was made that we should prioritise unemployment versus, for example, real-term wages growth. And that's a sort of value decision and you can understand why it was made. But I think you have to look at the last 12 years of Conservative government and think, are we in the best position we could possibly be in? And the answer probably is no. And I think the Conservative government, particularly ever since the referendum, has wasted a lot of time. But I'd actually say it goes back further than that. I think the biggest question is whether the Conservative Party ever really managed to come up with a credible answer to a sort of post-Blairite Labour Party and whether there was ever the ideas generation in the 2000s that could have done that. And you look at the sort of hypothetical of if the financial crisis hadn't have happened, what would David Cameron have been saying going into the 2010 election? Because it wouldn't have been about austerity because that wouldn't have been necessary if we'd not had the financial crisis. And I think one of the other things that I say a lot is... In some ways, Brexit grew out of this to quite a large degree that the Conservative Party really struggled to find anything that differentiated themselves, anything that they could believe in. But Euroscepticism was there. It wasn't something that the left really embraced except for a few notable examples. And that became a thing that the party rallied around more and more. You saw it in the 2001 election with quite bizarre campaign when you look around now that was focused on save the pound and against the potential joining of the euro. You saw it a lot in 2005 campaigning, this sort of in Europe but not run by Europe, those sort of sloganeering. And massively in 2015, it was the big differential. It arguably won that slender majority. But I think a lot of people in the party didn't really consider it would ever actually happen. And so there wasn't the thought of what would come after, and then it happened. And now we're dealing with what comes after. That's really interesting, actually. Brexit as a placeholder for conservative identity, when you're not sure what your conservative identity is. Finally, let's assume that things go on track and we don't have an election for the next two years, and then the next election is when it's scheduled to be any chance at all for the Conservative Party to win it? Or have they basically just exhausted their hold on power and their ability to say anything new? What, where, where would you put their chances? I mean, I mean, are you talking about their chance of winning or their chances of surviving? <laughs> Both. I think, I think it's very unlikely the party will win or be anywhere close to being able to form a government after the next election. I think a lot of the, a lot of the damage has already been done in terms of brand the party, not just from what happened over the summer, but basically going back pretty much a year ago to the Owen Paterson scandal and that sort of rolling crisis that enveloped Johnson's government did a lot of damage. I think you have a Labour Party that for a lot of Conservative voters, a lot of swing voters, doesn't look 
unappealing in the way that you know a Jeremy Corbyn government was very unappealing for lots of people for various reasons. Keir Starmer doesn't really have that same sort of threat. It's hard to have a strong feeling about Keir Starmer. Yes, but that's, Either way. that's working at the moment. And you talk to people who are around for the 1997 election and you talk to people who, particularly like people who worked in the city, and I know some Conservatives who say, I knew how bad it was when I came in and on our trading floor in the city, everyone was saying they'd voted Labour. It's that same sort of thing that the Conservative Party has put off a lot of even younger, well-off voters, put off a lot of moderate voters in the suburbs has failed to deliver, I think, for a lot of the red wall voters that it brought on side last time. And so you sort of wonder who's left. And I think between now and 2024, it seems very unlikely that the economic situation is going to improve much. People are going to be feeling it. You might get shortly before the election, a sort of big giveaway budget. That's probably going to be too little, too late. And I think there is a real chance that the Conservative Party gets squeezed by both Labour and the Lib Dems, and a real risk as well that a lot of people on the right of the party are disappointed and frustrated as well. And so suddenly there is a chance for an upstart party, whether it's something like reform or it's something in a slightly different guise, but that starts to echo it, chisel away a lot of votes on the right, and suddenly you're in a position where a lot more seats come into play. And I think the real challenge for Rishi Sunak politically is do the Conservatives come out of the next election with 200 seats, 100 seats or even fewer? Look at the trajectory that the Trust Premiership was on. It was, are they going to have more seats than the DUP? And I think with Sunak in charge, there's a lot of the people that I speak to who are Toryish in outlook, but not hugely political they feel comfortable voting for Rishi Sunak. And I think that's the difference between a Tory party that gets 30% and one that gets 20%. So I think the position will improve a bit, but I think it is, certainly when you look at the majority of the party won in 2019, it is probably going to be a historic defeat. How big that is, I think, depends a bit on the state of the economy. It also depends on how convincing the Labour Party are in the run-up to the election. And actually really boring things like how many volunteers can they put on the ground because when you're trying to win when you're potentially trying to win 400 seats as a party organizing an election that's a massive challenge john oxley thank you so much where can people find you so they can find me on twitter my twitter is at mr underscore john underscore oxley my Substack is joxley right so that's j-o-x-l-e-y writes and you're also a New Statesman columnist, we yes, should say. Yes, I am. <laughs> Thank you so much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my guest, John Oxley. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.